You're listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter of Strategies at Work, podcast edition, October 1st, 2019. Today's episode is titled The Default State of Mankind. One of the things that I got into earlier and early in my life was uh, studying under some seminary professors who um, who taught me and introduced me to the whole concept of worldview thinking. This was back in the 70s, a uh, time when Francis Schaeffer was, was very popular. In fact, we have actually had a conference at the church I attended, and I got to play the role of kind of the MC of the conference, and we had some great worldview thinkers come in and speak to us, and at the end I had a chance to to speak, and I had a chance, my speak was, a conversation was about summarizing all that had been said, which was, that was a monumental effort, but it was a very, a very good exercise for me. It took me deeper into this, and I realized that worldview is very foundational. It's very fundamental. Whether you know it or not, whether you understand it or not, whether you like it or not, everything in your life is driven by your worldview. Now, most of us are not too conscious of that. That's not a common thing that we go to bed thinking about. Well, does my worldview need to be corrected? Uh, we don't normally think in those terms. We just normally think in terms of, you know, whatever works. We tend to be pragmatists. But in the end, if we're really Christians, if we're really committed to a Christian worldview, we have to be committed to the Word of God and how the Word of God defines reality which means the norms of life in every area, whether it's social norms, whether it's family norms, whether it's church norms, whether it's business norms, whether it's public policy norms, all of these need to be connected to Scripture as classically and historically understood by the ecclesia. Now, I'm uh, using the word ecclesia. Have you all ever heard of that term ecclesia? It's a Greek word. Uh, it's the English translation of it is church. Now, the reason I'm in a little bit of rebellion against that is because the word church is actually is an English word that refers to a building. And that's commonly how we think of church. Ecclesia has nothing to do with a building. Ecclesia refers to those who have been called out to rule. It's not even a religious term. It's a political term. Jesus adopted that term to describe his legacy. When he came and he died, that was his mission, his destiny, but he had a legacy that endured beyond his life. And that legacy was to build his ecclesia, and those of us who know him are now part of fulfilling that legacy. So the ecclesia are people who have been called out for a specific purpose and it's really to bring forth the rule and reign of Christ here on earth. The ecclesia means ek means out of, and kleo means called, called out. You're called out, we're called out by God to be part of his community and now to be his representatives here on earth. That's the concept of what we call church today. And we've really kind of distorted that dramatically. So part of my little effort to say no to the distortion is say, now I'm going to use a different word and that way I get to define it and hopefully we're more clear. But the ecclesia, I believe, is the correct way to think about what we're here to do. Now, what's the ecclesia got to do with business, with organizations? We all 
are engaged in organizational leadership at some level. I've been involved in organizational leadership for over 40 years. Um, I, I'm now a consultant and spend a lot of time talking to organizational leaders around the world. In fact, I have clients in Hong Kong right now, and you can imagine what kind of conversations we might be having there with the chaos and the airport shut down right now. But uh, it's, it's a delight to be able to go to people that are submitted to the Word of God and say, let's talk about your organization in light of Scripture. So how do we do that? How do we begin to think at that level? Well, I think we have to get a framework. We have to have some sense of what the default thinking is of mankind. We all come into this world with a certain nature, and we have with that nature, a process that we kind of adopt of how we live and how we think. And that process is inherent in every one of us is pretty much the same in all of us. And I want to illustrate it for you here to kind of set up our conversation. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is a story of people who are in rebellion against God. They are not interested in the will and the ways of God. They're interested in asserting their will and their ways. And I think this is kind of one of those seminal texts the scripture gives us. You see, it's very early in Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. And, you know, the earlier in the book, probably the more significant that story is. So this is a foundational story if we can see it and we can understand it correctly. So let's read it together. And I'll make a few comments as we go along. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make open-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Now, that, those first few sentences there are the people. They are basically making certain assertions. First of all, there's total unity. They all can communicate. Now, I assume most of you are in organizations where someone in your organization at some time has complained that there's no communication. Have you heard that before? You know, there are certain things that are, are universal. Wherever I go, whatever organization, doesn't matter, nonprofit, for profit government agency it does not matter there are certain things that are i know are going to happen and one of the first things that's going to happen is there'll be be people out of place they haven't gotten properly allocated and not properly utilized the second thing i'm going to hear is there's no communication those two things i hear them every time consistently well here they're starting out communicating and they're starting out finding the right location you hear this? They're good real they're good real estate pickers. They can pick where we need to go. And they're going to come up with some technology, and they have a project in mind. And the project is to build a city and particularly a tower that reaches in the heavens, which is symbolic of saying we want to exalt ourselves. We want to play God. And so we want to build this big tower and make a name for ourselves because everybody else around us, they're just kind of, they're just kind of nomads. They're just moving. They're just kind of expanding on this planet. We're going to stop and make a name for ourselves. So this is what's inherent in us. We all want to start out wanting to make a name for ourselves, wanting to build a Tower of Babel for ourselves. 
In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, whatever organizations you're part of, it doesn't matter what it is. If you haven't really thought deeply, biblically, about why God ordained the organization, you are probably building a Tower of Babel. A monument to yourself, it's to self-glory. It doesn't matter what it is. A business, a school, a church, you know, a hospital, any kind of organization you're building, if you're building it out of your default nature, it's going to be a Tower of Babel. So let's see how God responds to the Tower of Babel. Then the Lord came down to watch over the city and the tower that the humans were building. Now, you, you know, hopefully you know enough about hermeneutics to know that this is probably anthropomorphic language because how does the omnipresent God go anywhere? You hear that? How does the omnipresent God go anywhere? He didn't go anywhere. So this is an accommodation to us to help understand kind of what's going on here. So the Lord came down, look over the city and the tower the humans were building. The Lord said, if they had begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible to them. Come, let's go down there and confuse the language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So this is the Lord's evaluation here. He recognizes you're using the tools that I put into humans. I gave humans the ability to communicate. I gave them the ability to be strategic. I gave them the ability to develop plans and to, be, to develop leadership and to be submitted to that leadership and to be unified. I gave them the technology to do what they're doing. Everything that they're doing, I gave it to them. And I gave them enough grace in their fallen state to even use that stuff to do something productive but they're gone over the limit because the motive is wrong. You see, God is saying, I never support the wrong motive. You got the motive to self-glorify, it will not go well. That's our default motive. Every one of us, that is our default motive. It's all about me, what's in it for me. So the Lord, I love the way he responds to the situation. You know, we're into, okay, we got to have a battle here. We got to do something here. We got to have a fight. His fights are unfair. You know, he, he, does, I mean, he doesn't even put up his dukes. All he does is said, I'm just going to confuse the language. That'll kill it. It's over. It's done. Because if you don't have communication, good communication in any organization, it will not stand. It cannot stand. So reading on it says, so from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and stopped. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Now, do you see this one project impacts the whole earth? This one organization impacts the whole earth. Now, because starting from that, this point, we now have different languages. You see, prior to this, there was one language. You look at the first verse, one language. The last verse here, multiple languages. And that comes from one project going off the rails. Now, that says something quite of interesting. It means that when we live out of order, we live for ourselves, most likely what your life is going to impact others. We like to think, well, whatever you do in private is up to you. In fact, a common mentality today is, you know, you can do anything you want in your private life, but when you come here, you've got to follow the, the values and principles of the organization. Well, guess what? That is unreality. That's not the way people live. 
You know, there's one guy, at least one guy that understood that. You know Ross Perot? You know who he was? He understood that. He had a policy. If he found that any person in his organization committed adultery, he fired him on the spot. There's no, no questions, no discussion. You committed adultery, you're gone. I remember having lunch probably 15 years ago with an executive that worked under Ross. I said, tell me, why did Ross do that? He said, the rationale was very simple. Ross said, you know, if the guy will be unfaithful to his wife, he'll be unfaithful to me. I can't have that. He understood the reality that you are what you are in every area of life. If you're out of order in your private life, you're going to be out of order in your work life. So he got that. He got that. And so you need to understand that's true of all of us. We are what we are in every area of our life. And we have to know that when we are out of order, when we are out of order with God, that will impact more than just us. It may impact your wife or your husband. It may impact your family. It may impact your Christian community. It can impact all kinds of people that you may be connected. Some of them may, may not be aware of. And, and when you're leading an organization, it can impact people in the organization that you may not know. I mean, most of you, are you, I guess most of you probably know all the people in your organizations. I remember when our organization, the family business, we got up to about 500 people. And I didn't know everybody. But I realized that what I, decisions that I was making as one of the leaders was impacting everybody in the organization. That's the picture here. We have to know that the way God works is leaders carry a mantle of responsibility. So here's the Tower of Babel illustrating how we, by default, you know, function. Now let's put this, contextualize this a little bit so we understand some of the backdrop here. So if we go back to the beginning and ask the question, why do organizations even exist? What's the point? Well, I think the answer is given to, to us in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 through 28 says this. This is God in the creation account. He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God made man in his own image. He created him in his own image. He created them male and female. By the way, that's, uh, that's verse 26 there, or 27. That's the first poetry in Scripture. Then verse 28 kind of summarizes. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. You see, we have this humongous task given to us. God creates a garden. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says, you are my agents. You carry my image. And what I want you to do is now to grow by, in terms of numbers and technology, mastering technology, and cover the earth and, and manage the world for me. And all the creatures I've made and everything that's in the world. So that's the mandate we're under. Now, do you think that maybe if, whoops, sorry about that. You think if we're under this mandate, it's going to take maybe organizations to do it? You think you might need an organization if you, you know, to help you with communication or help you with transportation or help you with finance. You know, there was gold in the garden. Genesis 2 said there was gold in the garden. You ever wonder why there's gold in the garden? Why is that important? Well, I think the reason that's important is God's signaling to us 
the basis of what a, a healthy financial system would be like. It'd be interesting discussion to talk about what's happened over the last nearly 100 years since we've gone off the, the, gold, the gold standard. If you ever looked at a, a curve on inflation, inflation throughout the 19th century is relatively flat. That means a steak dinner at the beginning of the 1800s would cost about the same as it cost at the beginning of the 1900s. Can you imagine that? Buy a steak dinner for $1.50 at, at the end of the century. Still about the same. Now what's a steak dinner cost you? Yeah. 30 40 50 $60 or more. Yeah, it's just got, it, it's exploded. Well, one of the reasons for that is we've gone off, off the gold standard. See, so these are the things that we need to pay attention to in Scripture. Scripture guides us into how to do things. And when we go off the rails, uh, this is what happens. It's called inflation. You know, and we're very likely going to get into hyperinflation. Uh, I don't have time to get into this, but if you want to look at what's likely coming, you need to read uh, some books that talk compare the United States to Nazi Germany. It's staggering, the comparison. And you start looking at exactly how Hitler got the power. Where the setup is here. The pieces are falling into place. It's probably going to happen here. You all may live to see this country become under a dictator. Now that is staggering for us to think at that, that level, but this is the challenge. We're, we are running off the rails because we are no longer holding on to biblical norms. Our, our definition of marriage has changed. Our definition of personhood has changed. Gender identity has changed. We think we have the right to change all of these things. We are created by God and he's the, he has the right to define reality and unless we submit to that, we're in rebellion just like the people who built the Tower of Babel, trying to make a name for themselves, you know, trying to be famous, trying to be in charge, wanting to be God. That's what's happening in our country today is we want to be God. So the scriptural answer as to why we're here, we're God's agents to rule, that is an unchanged answer. Now the problem that we ran into is called sin. Sin blocks us, sin impedes us, sin gets in the way. Sin is what <coughs> causes us problem every day. Now, how many of you this morning when you went to your work knew that you had to deal with sin today? Some of you did. All right, that's good. Do you call it sin? Do you actually use that word sin? That's good because I find most people will not use that word in the workplace setting. They say, why don't you use sin? It's what it is. Well, we just call it dysfunction or, you know, poor judgment, you know, or, you know, just a mental lapse. That's, we just sugarcoat it. I say, you got to call it what it is. Because you, as a manager, you what you really are is you're a pastor. Now, I'm not talking about the office of pastor. I'm talking about the function of pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. A shepherd is shepherding someone else's sheep and taking them through the process of lining them up with the will of the master. That's what you should be doing as a, as a business owner, a leader, a manager, whatever role you play. We've got to learn to think like that because we are living in a fallen world. And this fallen world impacts everything. Not only the animate world that we live in, but there's also with us the inanimate world. The second law of thermodynamics, for those of you that like physics, came about because of the fall. Arguably, there was no second law at creation. Now think about that. Second law of thermodynamics basically says this that the available usable energy is always decreasing. No matter what you do, you can never increase it. 
we are winding down. It's like a clock winding down. Eventually, all the energy in the spring is expended and the clock does nothing. That's where we're moving to. Now, the cosmologists, believe it or not, can see it, but they don't have a clue why. Or, and know how to, they don't know how to respond to it because the scientists today don't think biblically. But you, you think biblically. You should be able to see, oh, okay, I understand what's going on with cosmology. Yeah, that explains, Scripture explains it. See, Scripture explains reality if we have the eyes to see it and we're open to it. So we have the Genesis 3 fall, and Genesis 3.15 really is, is the picture of history. It's history, history reduced into two little phrases here. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. This describes everything from the fall to the recreation, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. Genesis 3 is the third chapter of the book. Revelation 20 is the third chapter from the end of the book. Everything in between those two chapters is described right here. It says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, my friend Dennis Peacock likes to say, this is the war between two seeds. We are in a war. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to be it or not, whether you think you signed up for it or not, doesn't matter. You're in a war. And you've got Satan and his minions and the, the forces of evil, the forces of darkness against Christ and the forces of light. And of course, what this text tells us is there is a certain end. The end is that the seed of the woman, which represents Christ, will crush the, the seed of the, uh, of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, however, will have some limited success. He will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, this is history reduced down to a very simple idea. So this is what many have called the protevangelum. The protevangelum, you hear the word prot, we get proton. And you know proton means, comes from the word protos in Greek, which means first. Okay, so it's like, it's the first thing. Pro-evangelium is gospel. It's the first preaching of the gospel. It's saying Christ is going to be the solution. Until the solution is finally fully executed, there's going to be a war, and the seed of the serpent will have some victories, but they will not endure. They will eventually all be expunged by, by Christ. So that's the backdrop here. Now, there are consequences. I'm not going to go into this deeply, but just there are consequences to the woman because of sin and her role in the fall and the consequences to the man. And these consequences basically have to do with work is now more difficult. Before you were able to expand the garden, the role of, of taking dominion over God's creation by expanding the garden was probably pretty simple. Every day, every year, just make the garden a little bit bigger. You know, you have more children, they, they can help and you make, the, make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Over a long period of time, the garden really grows. But after the fall, they were kicked out of the garden. So now they got to make it without the garden. So now it becomes a lot more difficult. Thorns and thistles are, are speaking of things like manufacturing defects. You know, errors that we make in producing goods and services. So these are the consequences of the fall that are still with us. And of course, the beauty here is that God is saying, you know, these the situation you're in will not last forever. I'm not going to let you partake of the tree of life. Okay, I'm going to, Christ is going to come and deal with all this, 
and then you're going to have life through him. So God's got this wonderful plan that he's set up. Now, let's say, let's, let's look real quickly what happened after the fall. First couple thousand years, basically man has oral tradition, has no written scripture as far as we know, no law, and just left to himself to see how he would function. This is a good way to find out what's inside of man. Where did that lead to? Well, led us to Genesis 6 where it says, Then the Lord saw that the human wickedness was widespread on earth and that every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had put man on earth and was he was deeply grieved. So you have now mankind cannot choose good. Mankind is not a blank slate. How many of you heard of the blank slate theory? That is the common theory of, the, of most people today, even those who profess Christ, sadly, but definitely those who reject Christ. They believe that man is born unbiased. No, mankind is born with a bias to sin a bias to evil, a bias to reject God. That's what's showing up in Genesis 11, is that bias. But first we have the flood. God's response to this, okay, reboot. This is a divine reboot. We're going to start with eight righteous people all over again and see what happens. And of course, you see where that, that took us now. It takes us to the Tower of Babel. And basically, you have the same thing going on. People rebelling against God doing their will according to their ways, and it's all about them. So this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop to, to the Tower of Babel story, is sin and the inherent sin in us. Now, one of the challenges that we have is to understand the depth of our depravity. Now, how many of you have said something like, well, I think men are basically good, or women are basically good? I've heard President Bush, when he was president, he would say this. I think people are basically good. Well, from the standpoint of God's standard of goodness, absolutely not. We are continually asserting ourselves as God, basically trying to take the place of God. So what God does in the Old Testament, he spends a long time with a number of different experiments to convince us that we're totally depraved. Total depravity means we can do nothing to be worthy of acceptance with God. That's what the, the term means. So the next experiment after the flood and after the Tower of Babel is promise. Okay, I'll give them a promise. Can they live under a promise? What happened there? Abraham couldn't live under a promise, so we wind up with an Ishmael. Okay, so I'll give them a law. So what happens when he gives them a law? The Israelites... Basically, Exodus 19 is an incredible text. The Lord says, you obey me, the law I'm giving you, and you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And they said, we'll do it. And they fell on their face. They failed because they did not understand the depth of depravity. You see, in Galatians 3, Paul explains all this. He explains that there's no way that human beings in the fallen state, in the natural state, could ever do anything to be worthy of God's acceptance. This is why we have to have Christ, a substitutionary atonement with double imputation. You know what double imputation is? The righteousness of Christ in his life is imputed to you and your sin is imputed to him. Double imputation. That is the unique work of Christianity. There's no other worldview that's like this. 
every other worldview, you are doing something to try to gain favor with God. Doesn't matter what it is. You, 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 you believe in, you don't believe, you're an atheist, you think there's nothing to gain favor of. If you're, if you're some kind of theist like, an, like a Islam, you believe you've got to do enough good works. Hinduism, Buddhism, same way. You've got enough, do enough good works and hopefully you'll have some kind of favor with whatever God may be. You see, there's no sense of God sacrificing in any worldview except Christianity. That's what makes it unique. So Christ came, and now we have no longer human power, which is never enough. We have now divine empowerment. We have the Holy Spirit that comes on us when we accept Christ, and now we're able to live at a different level. So all of this is backdrop to talk about the two ways that we can live and the two ways we can build organizations. So I want to walk, walk that through, through you with that with you this morning or this afternoon. And I want to then take you through my model real quickly. And then I want to do, I want to give you an example of a principle for my model. And I'm going to teach you a little bit about that exercise that's in front of you, how you can use that to help you align with God. All right, so you have basically what Augustine called the city of man and city of God. Hopefully you've read Augustine. If you haven't read Augustine, you need to read Augustine. He's arguably one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived in Christian history. And he, he was profoundly wicked for a long season in life and had an incredible uh, experience of coming into faith in Christ and then really applying himself to understand what Christianity really was by studying the scripture, committed to the word of God as the foundation for all of reality. So what we have here is a, a contrast of the of traits between the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is all about man being God. The city of God is about God being God. So that's the distinction. The entire Bible illustrates the city of man. So let's just walk through a few of these traits. First of all, the state. The default state of mankind is death. The default state of a person who knows Christ is eternal life. They've been redeemed from the default state of death. The next one is the attitude. The attitude, a default attitude of humanity is pride. Only redeemed people can truly function in humility. Only redeemed people know they can do nothing to earn God's acceptance. Only redeemed people through the power of the Spirit can live humble lives. Humble, the word humble in Greek language means to be low, which means you're not trying to exalt yourself. You can see that in the Tower of Babel, they were not humble. They were full of pride. It was about self-exaltation. It was narcissism. Then we have grace. I assume you know something about common grace. Common grace is a gift of God. It's, it's the reason you can eat your lunch and not be fearful that you're going to die. Did any of you worry about, about your lunch poisoning you? No, none of you did that. No, you don't think about that. Because you're trusting that that chef in there does not have a death wish for you. But he could. Okay, The reason he doesn't is because of common grace. God extends grace to everyone no matter what their state may be. In rebellion against him or in faith in him, it doesn't matter to allow them to, on a very basic level, to function in God's universe. The only reason you have an organization and have unsaved people in it and still survive is common grace. Because if people were as bad as they could be, you'd never be able to survive. We get a glimpse of how bad people really are every once in a while. 
every time we have a mass shooting, you see the depth, the depth that's within every one of us. When you see that, hopefully you say, you know, that could be me. Not the victim, but the perpetrator. Because what's in that guy is in every one of us. Now, most of us just reject the idea, I would never do that. I remember my, my wife uh, one time, uh, this was back when we were early, early on, and we just had our, our daughter, our oldest daughter, and she was so excited about this daughter, and she has a dream one night, okay? And in this dream, she's stabbing our daughter. And she woke up, she's just startled. And, and I said, what do you think the Lord's saying in that? She said, oh, it's very clear to me. The Lord's say, telling me that I could do that. You know, as much as I think I, there, I would never do that, I could do that. So that's, that's, that's reality. What's in any of us is in all of us. So these mass shooters, every once in a while, I think are just a little picture God has given us, a little glimpse of the depravity that's in every human being. And it's the grace of God that we don't have more of this going on. And on some level, I think God is responding to the rebellion of the culture, our presumption to self-exalt and self-define reality. And he's, he's basically lifting the restraining hand of the Holy Spirit so basically, some of the common grace is being lifted, and with it now, we're seeing manifestations of sin rising up in various ways. Very despicable, horrible things happening. That should really convict us of the reality of the need to be aligned with him. Common grace is a gift that enables us to survive in a fallen world. Common and special grace is what we have when we know Christ. We have the common grace and we have the special grace of knowing Christ and the benefits that come from knowing Christ. Then you have the source of wisdom. Basically, we have the, the world has got naturalistic wisdom. God gives us now metaphysical awareness. That is the ability to see beyond the natural, to see beyond what really is going on. See, for example, with abortion, you know, we talk about it as women's rights, no, it's not about women's rights. It's about legalizing sexual immorality. That's what it really is. But we never talk about it that way. We just talk about as women need their, their reproductive rights and control of that. No, no. We need to follow the biblical standards of sexual morality. That's really hard for our culture today. So we've got to learn to see things through God's lens, through his word. So i got to hurry on. Empowerment, if all you have is your human potency, your Power with common grace, you're very limited in what you can do. Divine potency is the ability now to work in the power of the Spirit in whatever it is you do. Have you, any of y'all seen anybody in your workplace that was it really, you could see the Spirit of God working through them to do something? If you haven't seen that, may the Lord give you grace to see it because it's an amazing thing when it happens. The metric, homo mensura, which means man the measure. That is the, uh, that's the metric we're operating under today. We think we can redefine anything we want to. We're human beings. We can do what we want to do. Instead, we ought to be thinking, Desmenser, which is God's the measure. We need to be measuring everything else by Scripture. The motive, in the motive in the fallen state, it's man's will. In the divine state of walking with God, knowing God, being redeemed, it's God's will. Finally, success. We can at best look at things temporally. We look at money, we look at fame, we look at fortune, we think that's success. Those are just temporal tools that do not transcend this existence. Real success must transcend this existence. And we don't really have a definition of that by and large. 
But if we know the Lord, we have a way to define it. Okay, so now my book, which is in front of you here, the long introduction here. Um, the book is built around the Beyond Babel model. Uh, I don't have time to tell you the story of how that model came to me, but um, it was, I, I felt the Lord, you know, I, I wrestled with this. What is a biblical model for building organizations? I was struggling myself, and this is what I felt like the Lord gave to me. The foundation of the model is a Christian worldview. You absolutely have to think Christian. If you don't think Christian, you are thinking like the world, and that will not lead you down a good road. You're walking on the road that leads you to judgment. All you got to do is read texts like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is very simple. It says this, if you line up with God, you'll be blessed. If you don't line up with God, you'll be judged. Any questions? It's that simple. Now, sometimes the judgment is deferred. So we have examples of what looks like wicked people having success. But Psalm 73 explains that. Psalm 73 tells us that sometimes God forbears. He's patient. But when you don't line up with him, you will be judged. It's just a matter of when and how and how ugly it's going to be. So this is the basis. We have to get clear that the only way to live well in God's universe is a Christian worldview. The next level is you have to have in an organization an equally yoked leadership team. Now, this is another one of those things I, I don't know that I can point. I've, I've been in scores of organizations over my career, and I can't tell you one, not one, that I would say, wow, they had an equally yoked leadership team. Now, I've had some claim it, but every time I've had a chance to dig into it, I discover, wow, that claim is a little dubious. You know, this is not quite what they're representing. It's very hard to have an equally yoked leadership team. That is, you're to come together, you have a common worldview, you see reality as God has defined it, you are committed to working together, and you have a joint vision together what you think God wants the organization to do. That's very hard to find. The next step is strategic planning. And this, again, is another one of those things that I think uh, it's very hard to find any organization, including churches, that understand what strategic planning is. James 4, verse 13 through 17, is very clear what strategic planning is. It says strategic planning is not about money. It's about discerning the will of God. That's what it says. Read it. Right there in the text. It can't be clear. And yet I find I can go into any setting, you name any setting, and my experience has been even the most godly people did not understand this. Now why is this? Because I think largely we have not been trained to think biblically about organizations, how organizations should function. I can't think of a single organization that when I walked in could begin to tell me how they should hire people. They were just doing what, what they read in the journals, what they read in the books, what they were taught in their MBA programs, whatever. They had no biblical reference point, no biblical compass to guide them at all. And yet, Scripture gives us a wonderful principle that I'm going to show you in just a minute about how to hire people, how to qualify people. Executional excellence. This is where most of your books and your pundits live. They don't pay much attention to the foundation. They don't really pay a lot of attention to equally yoked leaders. They'll talk about leadership, but they don't talk about equally yoked leadership, which is another level. And they certainly don't talk about strategic planning as a matter of seeking the will of God. 
it's always about maximizing profit because we don't understand real success is not denominated in dollars. It's denominated in obedience. Jesus died broke. Was he a success? John 17, 4 says, Jesus says, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He was obedient to the work assignment he had been given. That's success. It's not about the money. we got to get clear. Money is just a tool to do the will of God. We're not here to maximize profit. We're here to recognize God has given us assignment and to fulfill that assignment. And we know this. When we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you know that text? Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom, the rule and reign of Christ, and do it with according to his righteousness, his standards. What does he say? Whatever it is you need, I'll take care of it. You see, resources are tools to do the will of God. Resources are a tool to align with God. And we got to get that. If we don't get that, we're going to continue living like the people that build power battles because they don't think biblically. So the executional excellence is, again, about right systems, right processes, right people, right culture, right handbook, right value proposition, right customer service. These being God defining what right is. And that's a big challenge. And finally, customer validation. This is all about customers looking at what you're doing, customers who are qualified to render an opinion and giving you feedback, telling you, okay, um, we get this. Uh, this is what you're doing well. This is what you're not doing well because there's two real things you want to be, be hearing from your customers. Number one, have we discerned the will of God? And one of the ways you discern it is, is there provision to do what we're doing? Okay. Secondly, are we really delivering it with excellence? Now, I don't want to offend any of you all. Well, at least not too much. Okay. But one of the things that I've discovered in working with organizational leaders is there's, they are probably the most likely to be deceived in an organization. And the reason for that is they think they have to be always optimistic and positive all the time. We, we can't really talk about how difficult things are and how, how much a struggle we're We just got to be positive all the time. And they, get in, they, get, they begin to believe their own propaganda. And that leads you down a bad road. You need somebody that will tell you the truth. You know, the movie, you know, You Can't Handle the Truth. A lot of truth in that for us. We can't handle the truth, but we need that. I need truth about who I am, what I'm doing, and whether or not I'm really lining up with God or not. All right, so this is a very quick go through of the model. I've got lots of teaching. You've got a book in front of you. I'm getting ready to teach a course on this at a school, Bible school here locally starting this semester. I'll spend 15 weeks, and I will run out of time. There's that much to explore and discuss about this. If you're interested in watching any of that, it'll be on my, uh, my Twitter feed. It's also a, a Periscope. It's, you can go to Periscope and watch it live, or it gets posted automatically to Twitter, so you can watch it there too. But you can see how the students will wrestle with it. And the students will be Bible students. So these are people that are committed to the Lord, they think, but they don't have a clue how to think about organizational behavior from a biblical worldview. So we'll be talking about that. So this is the model. And I want to show you one principle, one example. There are lots of principles. I could have picked many examples, but I'm going to pick this one because it is probably the mo one of the most important ones. And that is how do you properly determine who goes where in your organization? Who's in what position? Well, this is the C4 principle. 
This is a biblical principle. This is not a principle I made up. I did not invent it. I read scripture and I saw it in scripture. So there are four elements to this. The first element is calling. There is a God who calls us to a work assignment. And whatever that is, we have to discern it both individually and those working with us. If they're, they're looking out for the, for the care of God, they're pastoring us correctly, they're looking for the call of God in our life. The next element is character. This is how well we think biblically. This is really how well do we understand a Christian worldview. Then we have capability, skill and ability. I mean, even the world understands you have to have certain skills. You don't hire a carpenter, you know, to go be a glassmaker. You know, you hire a carpenter to be a carpenter, a glassmaker to be a glassmaker. We understand that. So that's pretty simple. Finally, this one is probably very poorly understood in almost every setting, and that is commissioning. Commissioning is the work of authority figures in seeing the call of God on you and calling it out and say, you need to go do this. So calling character, capability, commissioning. You see, I've listed some text over there on the bottom, which you'll see the C4 principle, and you'll see ecclesia leadership there at the bottom. If you look at those texts in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you will be able to organize the traits that are listed there into the C4 model. Likewise, you see leadership administration, example in Psalm 78, construction, Exodus 35, food distribution, Acts 6, administering justice in Exodus 18, creative work, 1 Samuel 16. So massive, there's, there's numerous texts, and there are other texts that I haven't listed here, uh, which would tell you this principle. So if you've got a lot of scripture saying, this is the way you select somebody to do something, um, do you think it might be a principle we ought to pay attention to? Maybe it's a timeless universal principle of how God has created the universe to work. So there's, these are some examples. Now, I want to pick just the character component here, and I want to just illustrate for you uh, how to begin to look at character in a person. And that's the purpose of your exercise in front of you. So <clears throat> what I've developed... You, those of you that we had a conversation with before the start, you know I'm a scientist by training. And when I became an elder uh, and I began to ask what was success, we all agreed that success was discipleship. And I said, well, how do we measure it? And they said, we can't. I said, no, there has to be a way to measure it. So for the last 20 years, I have developed a, a, a plethora of models and meters and tools to try to measure discipleship in people. So this is one. This is just one of many. I have a mammonometer, if you're interested in that. I've got a Pharisee probe. We can figure out how much Phariseeism is in you. Okay? Yeah, and the mammonometer. Mammonometer, oh boy, people go ballistic. I forgot the orphanity index. How much you live like an orphan instead of like a son. Well, I got lots of tools for you. So this is just one. One, one tool. This is called the rebellion meter. So let me show you the meter real quickly. I've got to hurry here. So this is, because it's a rebellion meter, a high score means lots of rebellion. A low score means submission, surrender. Okay, so that's how you have to look at it. So, that, so what do you think is a better score? Low score. Low score is good. High score, not good. Okay, so the right side of the meter, we're going to list a few traits. I've just listed 10. You can list a lot more. I'm just giving you some examples. 
Here's some traits of a person that's living in rebellion against God. So first of all, their motive is all about themselves. I, I, I usually call them M&M people, me and money, M&M people, yeah. Okay, so, and by the grace of God, though, M&M people can survive because of common grace. Here's the example of common grace, Proverbs 16, 26. The laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. Isn't that a gift? He could go steal, okay? But the laborer, he's working. At least he has the grace to choose to work, and he's motivated because he wants to eat. Not a high motivation, but okay. You, you bless yourself and you bless others because you did something productive. So that's where they start. Now, let me go through the, the motivation of, of the person who walking with God in humility is about doing the will of God. I don't work for money. I work because I'm called to work. I work because I'm assigned to do whatever it is I'm doing. I don't do it just out of money. So then the traits go down. The, the person in rebellion lives in fear, and they believe in a closed system. A closed system is a worldview term that refers to a system where God is not in, engaged. This, the universe is a natural universe, a physical universe. There's no spiritual reality. There's no God. It's just up to me figuring it out. Whereas the opposite is faith. And an open system where I am walking with God, communing with God, and God guides and directs me. Next trait, limited to general revelation. You see someone in rebellion, all they see is what they know in the natural. Someone who's truly walking with God, they have general revelation, which is a revelation of God in creation. They have special revelation, which is a revelation of God in, in Scripture. And they have specific revelation. Now, this is not canonical, but specific revelation to do what it is that God has directed you to do. And there are examples of specific revelation of Scripture. Probably the most common one that you may know of is when Jesus told his disciples, when you're arrested and taken to trial, don't worry about what you're going to say. You'll be given it at the time. That's specific revelation. So you have three sources of revelation. Who do you want fixing your car? Somebody's got one source of revelation or somebody's got three. I mean, it's a no-brainer to me. I want all the sources at work. Then you've got natural gifting. If all they have is natural gifting, they have nothing else, or you have divine supernatural gifting at work. Have you ever seen somebody do something and you say, wow, how did they come up with that? I mean, it's just marvelous. It's like, wow, they, they just did things nobody else could do. Example of supernatural gifting at work. Then you have lies and deception. You see, in rebellion, you live in lies and deception, and you don't know it. It's just like the you know, when uh, Jesus is talking about in John 8 about what uh, being free is, being free is alignment with God, and he tells them, you know, you're, not, you're in bondage. No, we've never been in bondage. Remember that? They're in deception. They're clueless. The scripture tells them they've been in bondage, but they're sitting there trying to deny it. That's what happens to the people who are rebelling. They're in denial. People who are living submitted to God are in truth. People are, who are rebelling or blame people, and the opposite is responsibility. People in rebellion are independent. The people who are submitted are interdependent. The people who are rebelling are human doings. That is, their, their identity is defined by their doing. If you haven't recognized this, it's real simple. These people can absolutely never take blame for anything. They're fearful of making any mistakes, mistakes they cannot handle. Where someone who is walking with the Lord and humble, they're human beings. They know their identity is not defined by their doing. Their identity is defined by their relationship with Christ. 
Then we have self-oriented people who are in rebellion and those who are submitted. They are disciples, and you can see the difference. <clears throat> Satan and rebellion on the right, and you see Christ and surrender on the left. So that's a very quick overview of the meter. So what you have in front of you is a template that you can use to take these traits and evaluate someone. So I've got, uh, actually, I'm out of time, but do, can you bear with me for just a few minutes? To <clears throat> When I was uh, running the family business, uh, a business my dad started in 1949 when I was two, um, I, I, I was coming to an understanding. I was studying under some seminary professors, and I was really getting a, an understanding of worldview thinking, and I said, I want to apply this to work and what I do and how I run the family business. So I knew I wanted to start hiring Christians. That was what I was in my mind. I'm not claiming that that is the right way. The right way is C4. And that's a very long process to talk that through to really understand that well. But at that time, that was very simplistic thinking in me. So I, I needed an engineer. So I found a seminary graduate who was a mechanical engineer. I thought, wow, this is great. I got my engineer and he's theologically minded. This is wonderful. So I hired this guy. I brought him on board and, um, you know, I started throwing work in his lap. And it wasn't long, probably a month or so into it, maybe two months into it, uh, I began to get feedback. So I started start checking up and I discovered his jobs are not going well. Things are not happening as they should. So I began to sit down and talk to him and I realized, yeah, you've got a mechanical engineering degree and you don't have a clue how to engineer. So I said, okay. I took responsibility. I said, okay, I made a mistake here. I assumed that you knew more than you did. So I want you to meet me at six o'clock in the morning. Now, back then, six o'clock in the morning was really early for me. That means I had to get before 30 to get there at six. But I was determined to try to train him. So I started working with him one-on-one. -on -one and, and, you know, he was definitely a slow learner. I could tell he's, he's not getting this very well and was struggling with that. Finally, uh, December came. He comes to my office. We're still having our, our daily, I mean, almost every day we're talking about engineering, what, it, what, what to do here and how to do it, et cetera, and project management, talking about all that. And I'm just seeing, I'm not, I'm not excited about what I'm seeing. December comes, he says, I've got to have surgery. I've got all December off. Okay. All right. So I'll take care of your work. That was a big mistake he made. Because now I got a firsthand look at everything. I got into every job, every file. I saw it all. I thought, ah, this guy can't do hardly anything. Now, while I'm going through that discovery process, he had a surgery. He got to the place where he was a little mobile, but he wasn't going to come back till January. He had a company car. The, the policy was that the company car could be gassed up at the company gas tank for company business only. So one day, it's about the third week of December, he comes tooling into the yard, pulls his car up, and fills it up with gas. Now he's off. He's been off for three weeks, gonna be off for another week and a half, and he's filling up with gas. Everybody in the yard sees it, everybody knows the policy, everybody knows he's off work, and he becomes a laughing stock of the company. And of course, everybody's wondering what I'm gonna do. Well, by then, that was it. You know, the grace was gone. I, he came back to work, I think, January 2nd. He, I, the first thing I did is I had one of my 
one of my key men that I, I would trust. I said, you go get him, bring him to my office. I'm getting ready to terminate him. And when I do, you need to go clear out his office with him and get his keys and get him out of here. So this guy comes in, he's just happy as a lark, everything, everything's going cool. And um, I stand up and I look at him, I said, look, I made a huge mistake. It's my fault and I'm so sorry, but you need to know this, you don't belong here. He says, well, you can't fire me, I'm a brother. I said, watch me. And so I fired him. And it was one of the most painful things that I ever did. But the reason I fired him was because of his score. He scored a 77 on the rebellion meter. Well, that is ridiculous. We can't have that. We, we have to have people that are at least 50 or below. No 77s. And so now that was obviously a conviction I had. And you may have a different conviction about what the number is. But this gives you a tool to begin to look at people and evaluate people. So I've got to put that in front of you. If we had time, I'd let you do a rebellion meter on yourself. And then if I were really going to be challenging to you, I would say, now take it home and give it to your wife and let her evaluate you. Okay. And see what she says. I assure you in my meters over the years, my wife has always evaluated me a lot harder than I've evaluated myself. So that's been part of my humbling experience is dealing with reality about what's really going on to me. Well, this is an intro to Beyond Babel. Beyond Babel is about taking you deeper into thinking biblically about organizational leadership and management. And may the Lord give you grace to use this tool. And if I can help you guys, I'm delighted to help you. I'm, it's been a privilege to share with you. And I pray that whatever, whatever you heard here today that you needed to hear will go deep in you. So I just speak that over you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys.